0: Good evening. I scared away half the people. Well, this will scare away everyone else tonight. I'm going to have you do some some writing. How many of you have a pen this evening, or a pencil? How many of you have two? Somebody's already looking around. What is this guy talking about? It is better to give than to receive. So, if you have two, hand one to your spouse or friend We're going to do a little bit of, it's not homework, this will be assembly work, I don't know what we'll call it. Um, you should be getting a chart, and my desire this evening is to kind of bring us through a, a, a practice, a, uh, an example of something you can do when you study the Bible. Um, how, how many of you have ever taken a class or a, a session on how to study the Bible? Anybody ever had that opportunity? That's good. It's good. It's, it's good, and I can say it's fun. I mean, I think it's fun to study the Bible. I think that's okay to say. It's interesting. It's fun. Um, and I had that privilege, and I had a had privilege of taking a whole semester uh, course on how to study the Bible. And well, the course I took presented what was known as the inductive Bible study method. Inductive means when you look at, um, through the scriptures, Um, Lots of little examples of different things uh, and and draw a general principle from that. all those different observations uh, rather than having this idea in your mind and going and looking for proofs of it. And this method was presented to me in three basic steps. And I could present that to you when you study the Bible. And some of you are looking at this outline or the, the chart, which is fine. When you study the Bible, somebody has suggested that three basic steps would be Raise your hand if you've heard this before. Observation. on your head. Interpretation, and then what? Application, right? Observation asks and answers the question: What do I see? What is there? What's in the Bible? What's in this passage? And once you begin to see certain things in the Scripture, then you can go to the next step: interpretation, which asks and answers the question: What does this mean? I've seen things. Now, what does it mean? guys are looking at Peter. (laughs) The third question asks and answers the question, what do I do? What does it mean to me? Well, this evening, what I'd like to do is I'd like to take you through an example of the first step, observation. And we're going to fill out a chart as best we can as an example of the kind of charts that you can make when you study the Bible and you look for clues, you observe passages. If I'm good with my time this evening... Um, and we'll have to go quickly, which is fine. That's... What time do you all go to? <laughs> um, this will be an example of, of, of when, you, when you go through passages, you can make certain observations to see if the scriptures who ha- that have one author has done certain things in different books. So what I'd like to do this evening is to skim through three Bible stories, okay? This is big talk at the beginning of the message. Uh, One, the story of Ruth. Two, the story of Mephibosheth. And three, the story of Onesimus, or the New Testament epistle to Philemon. And I think you will see a number of different similarities in all three of these stories. And then at the end, we can apply the questions and the similarities to ourselves. I will give you some hints of what you can write in each box. If you don't fill them in yourself, that's great, that's fine. You can take this home, and, and you could go through it and say, okay, I'm going to study the story of Ruth or the story of Mephibosheth, and I'll see what, uh, what I see in it. This morning when we went through Mark 11 and 12, there were several observations of authority, right? This is his colt or his donkey, his city, his desire for figs, his right to fruit, his vineyard, okay? And we didn't get to his image on the coin. Whose image is on this inscription? Caesar, then render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Whose image do you bear? You bear God's image, give unto God the things that are his. We didn't do that, so uh, let's get right into it. Let's go to the Old Testament book of Ruth, one of my favorite Old Testament stories, Ruth is a beautiful story. Uh, two, of these, two of these books, Ruth and, and, and 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel, contain passages that I often think about during uh, our time of worship. Ruth, just bow our heads and ask the Lord's help with our time. Time is a valuable thing. Father in heaven, this evening, we ask that you would um, just help us to enjoy your word. We ask that you would help us to gain skills for studying it, Lord, and we ask that you would help us to obey it. Lord, encourage us through your word. We remember that it was written, that these things were written for our our, our comfort, for our hope. Lord, we ask that you would give us comfort and hope and encouragement from the scriptures, Uh, meditations, nuggets, things that we can enjoy about you. Lord, thank you for giving us this book. Thank you for writing it for us. Thank you for using different men to write with their, their distinct writing styles and, and, and uh, intellects and vocabulary styles, Lord, and yet your, uh, your voice is behind all of it. Uh, thank you for that. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Ruth, Chapter 1, reading from the New King James English translation. You know, the, the, one of the men that, that edited, that was the main editor behind the New King James was from a New Testament Pattern assembly. Um, I asked one of the sisters who lived in Florida here if she, if she knew, she'd lived in Texas, if she knew uh, Dick and Jane Farstad. Their brother Art Farstad uh, worked on the, the New King James. Um, Ruth chapter 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab. He and his wife, and his two sons. So you know when this was, right? When did this happen? In the time or the days when who ruled? The judges. Okay, so it's it's in that time period. Something's, something's not right right off the bat. There's a clue in this passage if you know uh, passages about the Mosaic Covenant. What was going on in the land at the time? Famine. If there's famine in Israel under the Mosaic covenant, That means Israel is not keeping the covenant, and God is punishing them. They don't lose their covenant promises, but they lose the enjoyment of it. And two folks who think they were smart, really the husband, what do they do? They leave the promised land and go to a land that has no promises with it. They go to Moab, takes his wife. Um, The names in the story of Ruth are interesting. Bethlehem. Beth means house, Lechem is bread, house of bread. So there's a famine, and people who live in a house of bread, that already sounds sort of like a contrast, leave. Okay? You see the, the, the connection there? Um, Elimelech, Melech is king, Elimelech, uh, God is king, or my God is king. So here is a man whose name is my God is king, leaving the land where his God has put his name. Um, Naomi. Anybody know what her name means? And you've got to be careful with names. And I am not a language expert. Uh, I'm going to try to take some classes, and I'm not pretending to be. So I've gained all these things from, from, from different books. Um, but Naomi, uh, I've been told, means pleasant or lovely. I mean, this is, a, this is a nice picture. House of bread, my God is king. Pleasant or lovely... And then there's these two sons. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion, or Chilion, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Now, Malon might mean to be sterile or to be weak or to be ill or to pierce. I don't know what the story behind that name was, and then Chilion or Chilion um, could mean to be finished, uh, weak, pining. It's not certain, but they're negative names. These two sons, and they go to they go to Moab, and then Elimelech, verse three, Naomi's husband died. And she was left in her two sons. Now, this is bad news. I mean, it's always bad news when a spouse dies. But they are in a bad place to have your spouse die. They are not Moabites. Now, they, that is the sons, took wives of the women of Moab. Were they supposed to do that? No way. This is just going from good to bad to really bad. They took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpha, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years. Their father might have been dead that whole time. It's hard to know. Then both Malon and Kilion also died. So the, women survived. the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Now at this point, is this a story about Naomi? It really is. I mean, she's the center of the story. Her husband's dead. Her sons are dead. And she's in a foreign land. One of the things that... Um, I've got here in the first row, just to get into this, that we'll see in all these stories. You guys can see this clearly? I'm joking. Uh, But I have my chart here, and and I think I left the first, the left hand column. I put one of the things that we'll notice about all these people is that they were as good as dead. They were in need of rescue. And so, what I've done in my chart, when I first started to make this, when I was studying, I noticed this. And so, I started to write down some things in this little square. Um, I'm sorry if you have big handwriting. Um, but some things that indicated that, that, that they were as good as dead. They were in need of rescuing. And one was that there was famine. I put the word famine there. Um, I wrote famine. I wrote dead husband and sons. Okay? I, I've, I'm, I'll tell you how I filled in my chart. This is just a, 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 a process of observing similarities and stories in the Bible doing the first row here. Naomi and Ruth, as good as dead. Um, And I'll go more quickly through the other stories in this one. Verse number six, she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab for she had heard in the country of Moab that Yahweh or the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Now, where did the Lord visit his people? He didn't visit them in Moab. He visited them in the land of promise where he would put his name. And so the Lord's blessing came, and she wasn't part of it because she wasn't where the Israelites were supposed to be. By the way, when you see, and you might all know this, capital L, capital O-R-D, that indicates in your English translation that the word Yahweh or sometimes Jehovah is there. Capital L, lowercase O-R-D, would be Adonai, and then God would be Elohim. So when you see capital L, capital R-D, that's the name of the Lord, which the Jews wouldn't pronounce. Um, It's not Jehovah. Um, That was something that was sort of invented after the time of the Lord, an attempt to fit some some vowel sounds with the consonants. Uh, But the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Therefore, verse 7, she went out from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me. Uh, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. So she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. I mean, real touching. Go, go, go back home. Get married again. Um, and they said to her, No, no, we'll, we'll go with you to your people. Surely we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, t- turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are, are there still sons in my womb that they might be your husband's? No, I'll turn back, my daughters. Go. I'm too old to have a husband. I mean, if I should say that I have hope, uh, if I should have a husband tonight, I get married tonight and have a husband, and, and I, have, I have sons, two sons. Would you wait for them? Are you going to wait 20 years till they were grown? Would you restrain yourselves from having husbands? You couldn't wait that long. That, that wouldn't work. No, my daughters. It grieves me very much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She knows that Something's not right here, and the Lord is involved. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And here's a beautiful contrast, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. That's very interesting. The gods were connected with the people and the land. To leave the land and leave the people and leave the family was to leave the gods, which will make what Ruth does very significant. But Ruth says, and you hear this at weddings, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And here's a line of faith in the Old Testament. Your God will be my God. Not Chemosh, not the God of the Moabites. I think it's Chemosh. Your God will be my God. So she must have heard about the God of the Israelites. Where you die, I will die. Don't be, I won't be buried with the graves, the pagan graves of my people. I'll be buried in the graves of Israel. There I will be buried, and Yahweh, or the Lord, do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. We can't stop and talk about that. So they go back to the land. Um, uh, And I've just got one other point here. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her. Now the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. She goes back home, back home to the hometown. And it happened when they came to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. And the women said what? Hey, look who's back in town. Is that Naomi? I mean, it's been over 10 years. That's a long time. But she said unto them, and here's another clue for this this cell. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me what? Mara. Bitter. Change my name. That old name means something that's not true about me anymore. I'm not Naomi. I'm bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. Now, this is interesting. If you leave your land and go to another land, it's not because you think you're full. You think you're blessed. They left Bethlehem because there was a famine there in their perspective. But now look at her perspective a decade later. She says, you know back then when we left town because it was a bad place and the economy was bad and God just wasn't working. Look at her description of it. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. So why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has testified against me? and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And then there's a beautiful little line to the end of the chapter. What does it say? Now, they came to Bethlehem in the time of the beginning of barley harvest. That whole theme of famine, it's barley harvest time. The the, the chapter is positive. So I put in this first uh, row that Naomi uh, was as good as dead, Naomi and, and Ruth. There was a famine. They were dead. Uh, their husbands were dead. The, 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 the sons were dead. Naomi changes her name to Mara. I put here uh, sh- full and then empty. Uh, she is a foreigner. Ruth is a, a foreigner. The Almighty has afflicted me. You put all these little things down there to indicate that somebody is in need of rescue. Something's gone wrong. Somebody is powerless. These women are now in a place where they have no land, no husbands, no sons. It is not like it is here in the United States where you go to college and you get your degree. And sometimes this is why um, I know some parents are really keen that their girls get an education, or at least some kind of skill, because if the husband dies, you know what, what do they do? It is a practical concern. Uh, and in this time, I mean, you really see they face this issue. And they're back, and they're just completely helpless. And Ruth, she is a foreigner. I mean, she has n- she's got nothing except her mother-in-law. And that is a dangerous thing for her to do, to show up in a foreign land with no husband, no visa, I mean, nothing. They're powerless to save themselves. And so I put under the, the row powerless to save themselves these things. She, they were women without husbands and sons. If you want to write some of those things in the second row powerless to save themselves, they had no ability. They were women, they were without husbands or sons. You could put a foreign land for Ruth. No brothers for levirate marriage. It seemed like that. So they were as good as dead. They needed rescuing. They were powerless to save themselves. What happens? Well, the writer hints right here at verse 1 of the second chapter. He says, there was a relative of Naomi. I I, I like the way Ruth is written because the writer gives you some hints. There was a relative. It just so happened there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. So I have here the third row. Someone steps into the scene who's able to save. And... Notice what the writer calls Boaz. He's an Ish Gabor. Ish's man Gabor could be, it could have a touch of nobility or of, of, of almost one who, who fought or one who was a noble or one who was wealthy or powerful, all, all of these different sort of concepts in the word. But, but Boaz was a man of means. He could do stuff, right? I mean, people who have wealth and, and money, they can, they can do stuff. Um, Somebody who is able to save steps onto the scene. The question is, is this person willing to do anything? He's got land. So Ruth, the Moabitess, says to Naomi, uh, please, this is Ruth saying this, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. Now that's a lovely line. You could think all kinds of things about that. Someone looking for what? Mercy. Somebody looking for Grace. Let me go find someone who will be gracious and merciful, someone in whose sight I might find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And after she left and went, she left and went and gleaned in the field of the reapers. And she just so happened to come to whose field? The field of Boaz. Total coincidence. No, not at all. But in Israel, the Lord had had set up in the law that those that had fields were not to reap the corners of their fields. So that people that didn't have anything, the strangers, uh, the poor, could come and reap. They didn't just get a handout, but there was something there for them. If they wanted it, there was something there for them, but they had, they had, to, they had to work for it. But they got it. When, you, when you, uh, you pick your grapes, you don't pick every last grape, said the law. You'll leave some there. And so people like Ruth could go and find some type of, of help. I mean, it's neat that the Lord engineered that into the Society of Israel. Uh, that was the Lord's idea, to take care of the poor in that sense. And so Ruth takes advantage of that. Naomi takes advantage of that. She, she lands in the field of Boaz, she, and, and um, she goes and begins to glean after the reapers. So they're following, and they're picking up grain that has fallen. And she happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to Boaz, who was the family of Elimelech. Now, behold, look, Boaz came from, oh, where's he from? Same town, Bethlehem, and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him, the Lord bless you. This is a man that starts off the conversation with something spiritual. That's nice. The Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, who's in my field? Who's that? Now, you can read that line a couple ways. It depends on how you're reading the book. All right? He could just say, who's this woman in the field? Or he could say, who's the woman in the field? See if you're, well, anyhow. Um, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. And Boaz said to Ruth, so he goes and talks to her. He says, Will you listen, my daughter? So he's older than her, will you not? Don't go glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. Have I not commanded the young men to touch you, not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what you have, the young men have drawn. Now, for the sake of time, I just, I, I'm itching to jump into how this reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. He steps on the scene, and he's able to do something. She's looking for what? What is she looking for? Someone to show her grace and mercy. Here comes Boaz, and he's ready to offer Grace, mercy, refreshment, protection. And, and I'm thinking in this of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if, if you know, you, some of you are already, already going there. You know what I'm going to do with this. This is going to be us in the end. We're the people that are going to be what? As good as dead. We're the people that are going to be um, powerless to save ourselves. Someone's going to step into our scene who has the ability and power to save. And, and Boaz reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when I read these words... In chapter 2, I think of the Lord Jesus Christ saying that to me. Don't go glean in another field. Isn't that beautiful? Nor go from here, but stay close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. And there are some people that are gleaning in other fields. I mean, that's really what their family did. They left the Lord's land. They came back, and there was somebody there ready to help who says... Dude, that's just just grace. That's mercy. They got no rights. And he says, stay stay in my field. I'll take care of you. Um, And so he's able to say, I've written in my my, uh, row here, someone who is able to say he he is an Ishgabor, I-S-H-G-A-B-O-R, a mighty man of valor. He has lands. He has crops. And the passage tells us he is a near kinsman. That's a hint at what's coming up. He's a near kinsman. Um, I have in the next row someone who is willing to save and I'll just have to jump ahead in the story because you know the fuller story of Ruth it's not just that she needs some grain they need a permanent solution their land is gone the people that own the land are dead somebody I don't know if they sold the land off but somebody needs to buy back that land redeem it and then the family line is dead until unless someone comes along and raises up children. And that's the whole levirate marriage aspect of the Old Testament. And so as the story goes on, you know that Boaz, not only does he dole out to Ruth grain and provision, but this whole issue comes up of will he marry her? He's not a young man. He actually says, he notices that Ruth um, pays attention to him and, 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 and didn't go looking after the young men. And so this issue of, of buying and redeeming comes up. Let's turn over to chapter 4. Boaz went to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. There's a, there's a twist in the story. Every good story has a twist. Oh, no. No. Are they not going to get together? You know? See, all all of y'all know what I mean. Everybody else, they don't. They're way beyond that. (laughs) Are they going to get together? Is this going to work out? We hope it does. And is this other, and I'm sure he's not as nice as Boaz, you know, is this other man going to redeem and want you know, want, want to get in here. Now Boaz went up to the gate, verse 1 of chapter 4 there, and look, behold, a close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, uh, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold... There it is right there. They sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying... Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants of the elders of my people. This is your chance. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And the man said, "Ah, I'll redeem it. Thinking, no, no, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, it's not just about land, brother. There's more here. You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess. She was married to the sons, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, there's more to this than it seemed at first pass. And the close relative said, oh, wait, 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 wait. I, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. I can't have my inheritance go into offspring of somebody else's family. You, you redeem it. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. So he was able to save, but he was not willing. Boaz was able to save, and Boaz was willing to save. He was willing to do something. Boaz wants to do something about this. Boaz knows the whole requirement, and he's willing to do it. The other kinsman wasn't. Therefore, verse number 8, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal and Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you are witnesses to this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and all that was Malon's, I added all in there, from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, on top of this, verse 10, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to, Why to perpetuate the name of the dead. So the family name doesn't die. Through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from the position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. The Lord wanted the inheritance to stay with the family and the tribes that it was given to. And all the people who were at the gate, the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. Now we come down to the the last ones. The price paid. Clearly implied here in those statements is that Boaz pays the price. He buys it back. Man's got some bank accounts. I mean, he buys back everything that belonged to Malon and Kilion and Elimelech. And he takes Ruth as a wife. He pays the price. He redeems. That's what redemption is. And the last row, restoration and adoption into the family. This shows up in all of the the passages. We've got to hurry up here. Look what happens in the end of these the end of chapter 4. Notice what the people start, well, we'll go to chapter, uh, verse 13. So, Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, now remember, Naomi came out full, she came back empty, Change my name, don't call me um, um, pleasant, call me bitter, I've lost everything, watch what happens now. The women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel and may he be to you a restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name. This is this baby. There is a son born to who? To Naomi. That's Ruth's baby, but they say there's a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. And then he gives the the, the lineage that goes down to, to King David. Now, I don't know, but that's a way to close off a story. And so I have put down here that the inheritance is restored. Ruth gets a husband. She gets put into the Davidic line of the king. I mean, that's becoming as Israelite as you can get in one sense. I mean, she's a foreigner from a foreign land, and she comes into the line of David the king and thus into the line of the Messiah. Ruth has a son, but Naomi has a son, and Naomi raises him Come full circle. Good is dead, powerless to save themselves. Someone who is able to save steps onto the scene. They're willing to save, not just able. A price is paid for redemption. Restoration and adoption occurs at the end. That's good stuff. I enjoy that. It's a a beautiful story. And this is where I'd say you can get up and take a breath and sit back down and get tired sitting a little bit. If we were teaching at a camp or something, everybody stand up. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Oh, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Hang on. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get it there. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I don't, want, I don't want to fail to point out to you one of my favorite verses in Ruth, but both Ruth and Mephibosheth will say almost the same thing. 2 Samuel chapter 9. We'll go a little quicker here. Looks like you all might have to fill in the, the third column yourselves, but 2 Samuel chapter 9. Here we go again. Now we're in the second column. Everybody say Mephibosheth. You got it. Isaiah wasn't Isaiah had a son? Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's 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 Scrabble power right there. Second Samuel chapter nine. Now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness, show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Second Samuel chapter 9 verse 1. I mean, there's a whole world of thought in that verse. Who gets up in the morning and says, "Where is someone that I can show kindness to?" King David did. And there was a servant of the house of Saul. Okay, now now let's get get the background David is king who was king before David Saul and they were best friends right no okay and there were there were there were there were fights between the families and battles i mean there's some there's some gruesome stuff when the young men you know they all got together and the young men were killing each other i mean it's and and Saul had hunted David and in the ancient world when opposing kings took over in power if you were of the losing family i mean that was you could lose your life. And this happened. Just read the history of Israel. I mean, people are killing people. I mean, it was ugly. And so this line explodes. I want to show someone from the enemy's house kindness. For Jonathan's sake, for another's sake. And a servant of the house of Saul, whose name was Zeba, was there. Verse 2 So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Zeba? And he said, at your service, verse 3, then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Now the servant might have been thinking, yeah, right, you're hunting down every last man. But that was really what he wanted to do, the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, there's still one Saul of Jonathan left, the grandson of Saul, the grandson of your enemy who hunted you down is still alive. And he's crippled. He's lame on his feet. So the king said to him, well, where is he? And Zebah said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel and Lodabar. The king, David, sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. I have put, and we're going to skip a few passages here, in the first row, as good as dead, he is first of Saul's house. This is of the enemy's house. When you're of the enemy's house and a new king is on the throne, you're as good as dead in some senses. He's the grandson of the enemy in a secular sense. Now, we know David wouldn't lay a hand on the Lord's anointed, right? But in the common politics of the day, he was the grandson of the enemy, and he was crippled. That's symbolic. And he was from a place, and here come the, the, the names again, and I could be stretching this a little bit. Lo in Hebrew means no. Loami, no, not my people. Lo debar, no pasture. Okay, Now I can't make a whole theology out of that, but it's not a, it's, he didn't live in, in happy land. He lived in lo debar, no pasture. I put all those things in, in this row. He's as good as dead. He is in need of rescue. To me, these are all negative things that symbolize a man that that wasn't in a good way. Um, you know, he is a powerless to save himself from anything that could be potentially about to happen. When the king wants you in front of him, and you're crippled, and your grandfather was the enemy, you can't, you can't do anything. You can't run in that sense. I mean, you can't change your family's past. I put all those things. I put crippled. One who scatters shame is One of the names that comes into here. He can't change his family's past. So the third row comes up someone who was able to save. Let's, Let's read here. Verse number six. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, so you know Jonathan and David, best friends, this is Jonathan's son, son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself. See him laying there in front of David. And David said, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth said, here is your servant. And what does David say? Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. And look at what he says here. This is what comes into my mind sometimes when I break bread he bowed himself and said what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I you know what Ruth said she 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 says to Boa she says why have I found favor in your eyes why are you being so nice to me you ever say that to the Lord Lord why are you so nice to me why have I found favor in your eyes these are words of worship Someone who is able to save. Obviously, a king, second row. The offended party. The one David is the offended party. His, this guy's grandfather hunted David. If there was anybody that could forgive that family, it was David. David is a king. A king can do anything. David is able to save Mephibosheth. David is able to give land back, to restore. There was someone in this story that steps into Mephibosheth's life who is able to save. And we've already seen here, second in the next row, he's willing to save. David initiates this. David goes and gets Mephibosheth and calls him. Someone willing to save. I put David was willing. David initiates this for Jonathan's sake. Perhaps because of the love of God experienced in his own life. Remember David wrote about chesed, the love of God, the the faithfulness of God, the loving kindness. verse number nine, and the king called to Zebah, this is the ser- Saul's servant, said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belong to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your son, so this is Saul's servant, now he's going to give new marching orders, you and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. Look at this beautiful line, but Mephibosheth Your master's son shall eat bread at my table always. Verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelled in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Now when you're lame in your feet and you sit at the king's table, you can't see that. And he's sitting at the table. Look at verse number 7 said, You'll eat bread at my table continually. He brings him in like the king's sons. I mean, he goes from a place of no pasture. I'm thinking down here, down here, he receives grace and mercy, price paid uh, instead of death, a restoration of all Saul's farmlands, a price is paid in that sense. In this last row, restoration and adoption, just like Naomi and Ruth got family and got brought into the line of Messiah, here, Mephibosheth, he sits at the table like he's part of David's family. Like he's one of the king's sons. He moves to Jerusalem. Somebody's back at home taking care of his land for him. Like he's royalty. I mean, this is complete restoration for this guy. I mean, forgive me for, for saying this, but that's good stuff. I mean, that's, that's beautiful. And what prompted all of this? I think it was because David knew what it was like to experience God's kindness. When you experience God's kindness, that begins to flow out of you at some point. See me looking at the clock. Well, here's what I'll do I will give you some hints about Onesimus. Now, I've got Philemon up here. It should be Onesimus. Anyone know who Onesimus was? Philemon, big long book in the New Testament. Turn to Philemon. Like what Joe Reese said the other day. Go to, I don't remember what book it was. He says the pages are stuck together there, you know. Philemon, chapter one. You all want to do this quickly? Go through it? Somebody's saying yes, and he's like, no. Verse number 8, he, Paul writes a letter to Philemon. Philemon was a slave owner. Verse 16 says the word slave, no longer a slave. This is Onesimus. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also prisoner of Christ, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. So there's, there's our man, who, has, who I have begotten while in my chains, who was once unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him. That is my own heart, who I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf, he might might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntarily. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, I've circled that, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me now. But much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. It's unfair to read those verses that fast. But Philemon was a Roman slave. In, Romans, if, in Rome, if a slave ran, he could be killed. He is as good as dead. He's not at home. He's, he's with Paul. And he's not with Paul because anybody sent him there. I don't know the story behind how he crossed paths with Paul. But somehow he did. He's a runaway slave, verse 12 and 13 death penalty was a real possibility. He was powerless to save himself. And the man's a slave, Roman Empire. All right? The only way that he could be forgiven was if his owner forgave him. He was powerless to resolve whatever had gone on. Third row, somebody steps into his life that's able to save him. There's somebody out there besides his owner that's able to do something. Who's that man? Someone trumps Philemon. Paul, look what Paul says, I could be bold, verse 8 in Christ, and I could command you to do what's fitting, but I'm not going to do that. For love's sake, I will appeal to you, I'm Paul the aged and a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Now, how are you going to turn on a man who's a prisoner for Christ when he writes you a letter and asks a favor? I appeal to you, what does he call Onesimus? What did you say? I appeal to you for my son Onesimus whom I have begotten in my chains. Somebody accepted Christ as his Savior when he met Paul. And now Paul calls him like Timothy. He's my son. I mean, I'll let you dig around this one, but now he's going back home, not as a slave, but as a, a son. Someone who's willing to save, and I, I, I would love to go through this, but I'm not going to do it. I would love to give you, I mean, there are just nuggets in this passage. There is, here is one who restores a runaway slave based on a relationship that that two have. You were restored to God based on a relationship that two had. Jesus Christ and the Father. Someone who's willing to save, a price was paid. I mean, literally in this story, Paul talks about paying things back. There's restoration. You look at... What he was described as, he was a slave. You go home and look at what Paul calls Onesimus and the things that he says. I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately leaving those open for you to, to go down through. And then I, I will not give you, but I have all kinds of verses written in this column where I've put myself. Verses where I was as good as dead, spiritually speaking. No rights. Powerless to save myself, under judgment. Someone steps into my life who's able to save me. You know who that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's not just able to save, he's willing to save. There are verses that talk about the Lord's desire to save. He paid the redemption price, didn't he? You were not redeemed with silver and gold. And there's restoration, adoption, does that come up? A new family, complete change. And maybe there are other stories where you could add more columns. I think when you read the Bible and study it, one of the things that gives you a hint to its divine authorship are themes that flow through the Bible. And charts like these will help you discover those themes. So this, is a, this was an example of observation, observation, interpretation, application, observing, observing, observing. What do I see? What do I see? What do I see in the Bible? Do this with... The churches in Revelation, seven churches. What's being said about all of them? What do you see? You can do this with all kinds of things in the scriptures. Um, Let's close in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of the son of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for these beautiful pictures in the Bible. Lord, sometimes we're slow to open ourselves up to the possibility, Lord, that you, the God of deep space, the God who engineered DNA and engineered the, the orbits of the galaxies, are a are good God. Behind all of time and space, there, there you are, a good God, a God who, in the vast recesses of the universe, is love and is patient, and as kind. Lord, we look out into the cold, the coldness of space, and there you are, the God beyond it, and you are warm, and gracious, and kind. And yet you are Lord, and holy, and righteous, high above the heavens, humbling yourself to look on them. Lord, we ask that you would help us to pursue you in the scriptures, and to look upon Christ, and in seeing him to see thee, and in knowing him to know thee and in gazing upon him to being changed, so that being like Christ, we might be like thee. And your will for us to bear your image would be fulfilled. We ask this in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.